And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Uh, I first met uh, Douglas Alexander when uh, I was uh, consulting on the labor campaign in Britain in 2015, and he was chairman of that campaign, a senior member of parliament, the shadow foreign minister, uh, and he was swept away in the tsunami uh, that uh, overtook labor in that election, lost his seat in Scotland, uh, but remains a really incisive uh, observer, commentator uh, on the politics of Europe and the U.S., uh, where he visited uh, the Institute of Politics this week. I sat down with Douglas to talk about the election that was just held here in the context of Brexit and some of the other elections we've seen uh, to contemplate where we are uh, and where we're headed. Douglas Alexander, first of all, thank you for being at the Institute of Politics. Um, We've known each other now through the labor campaign in Britain in 2000. And 15, but you know, for all the time that we spent together, I never really asked you how you came to be interested in politics and uh, how you grew up, and I'm, I'm interested in that. Well, for me, politics was always about serving a community and serving a cause. My father was a minister in the Church of Scotland for more than 40 years. My mother was a doctor in the National Health Service, so... They were not active politically in the sense of standing for elective office, but a sense of service animated the conversation around the kitchen table in the manse that I grew up in. Uh, And they had a powerful sense of, I think inspired by their Christian values, a powerful sense of service that they gave to their children, of which I was one. What uh, transformed that sense of service into uh, an interest in politics, though? Now, I know your sister also went into politics. That's right. My sister ended up as a member of the Scottish Parliament when I was a member of the British Parliament. Um, For me personally, it was the closure of a local car plant, um, the Linwood car plant, which closed in the early 1980s. saw many of the employees made redundant, many of them parents of people I was at school with at the time. So I made the choice in 1982 to join the Labour Party. I didn't have evidence that Labour could make the country better because I wasn't really old enough to remember the last Labour government, but... Uh, I believe there had to be a better way than the policies that Margaret Thatcher was imposing on the whole of the United Kingdom. You were a kid then. The you were pretty I young. I was. I was pretty young. I was 14 at the time. Uh, I remember the first time I heard Neil Kinnock speak was just two Labor, or three Labor days. Labour Party leader. He was the Labour Party Powerful leader immediately speaker. after 1983. But at this time, he was the shadow education spokesman. And he arrived to speak in Erskine, an uh, area of Renfrewshire that I represented for 18 years. Um, and he spoke to a huddled small group of us in a local primary school, an elementary school, and he said just two days before polling, he said, Labour is going to be devastated south of the border. We're going to be wiped out. And he said, I I implore you, I beg you, if you've got any family or friends south of the border in England, please phone them and tell them how much this community needs a Labour government. So my earliest experiences in the Labour family were of bitter and repeated defeats. But... I, I had a conviction that still politics could be a site of progress and of improvement, and I stuck with it. Why Why did you feel that way in the face of uh, 
these repeated defeats? Again, I probably would would start that explanation with my parents. You know, my my mother and father were very unusual in some ways and very traditional in other ways. Um, my father in nineteen the late 1950s, 1959, came here to the United States to study at Union Theological Seminary in New York. He worked in East Harlem Protestant Parish. He heard Martin Luther King preach. So he always had a sense of the temporal world and the spiritual world not being too far apart. I remember him telling me that the literal translation of righteousness is right relationships. And ultimately, that's what politics is about. It's about finding common solutions to common problems. And in that sense, my parents, whether it was my mother's experience in the health service during the 80s when many, many people in Britain were waiting in circumstances of personal pain for operations and for treatment, or the people who ended up at the door of the manse to seek uh, support and advice from my father, often suffering unemployment, convinced me that there had to be a better way to organise society and to organise our economy, and I believed that Labour represented that better way. You spent some time uh, studying uh, here in the States and in Canada. Uh, what, did, what did you learn from those experiences? Well, when I was very young, when I was 16, I won a scholarship uh, from the local comprehensive school, the local state school in Renfrewshire, to attend an international college in Canada. Uh, it was called Lester B. Pearson College in honour mm-hmm. of the former Canadian Prime Minister who won the Nobel Peace Prize. And the words that he spoke when receiving the Nobel Peace Prize were embossed on a sign at the door of the college, and it said, uh, how can there be peace if people don't understand each other? And how can people understand each other if they don't know each other? It was an international college with more than 85 countries represented in a student cohort of 100 students. It was full scholarships for all of the students, so it was a merit-based college. But it gave you a a deeply human sense that the world was filled with people who, if you had the opportunity to meet them, you could find common ground. Here at the University of Chicago yesterday, one of my college uh, friend's son turned up at my officers to say that his dad sent his regards. He was a Norwegian student at the time who's now built a very successful life and career here in the United States. But I think that early educational experience gave me a sense of internationalism that was unusual at the time. Uh, And then I came here to the United States to study at the University of Pennsylvania for a year between 1988 and 1989. And as you remember, that was the autumn of the Dukakis-Bush presidential contest it was about that time I began to worry that I had a unique ability to lose elections because <laughs> I arrived in Labour, around Labour Day in 1988. Uh, Dukakis, I think, had a 14-point bounce out of the Atlanta Convention, and I immediately started volunteering for the Democrats in Philadelphia, and within a matter of weeks, I'd delivered the White House to Bush 41, to George Herbert Walker Bush. But that was a fantastic experience. On polling day in 1988... I was standing uh, at a polling station in northern Philadelphia and I was the only known African-American that I met in five hours standing at that polling station. Just a few days before that, I'd travelled to southern Philadelphia with uh, Mario Como and heard him speak half in English and half in Italian to uh, open the back of a flatbed truck, actually, to a huge Italian community. So it was it was a fascinating education in democratic politics for me. And even if it wasn't a successful campaign, I cherish some of the memories from that time. What were your observations about American politics? I guess one of them was the tremendous diversity that 
you encountered there in Philadelphia. Absolutely. If I'm honest, I um, I came away with a sense that politics was about more than competence. It was about ideas and ideals. And I think one of the big mistakes that Dukakis made was when he declared that this election was about competence. Mm-hmm. I remember Kitty Dukakis coming into the Philadelphia headquarters of the Democrats early in the morning on polling day as she was on a sweep back up to Boston. And we all had to hold signs and the kind of organisers encouraged us to cheer Kitty Dukakis, Kitty Kitty Dukakis. I'd never felt more Scottish in my life. It was, uh, we're, we're not particularly known for our rah-rah enthusiasm. But I remember thinking there has to be more to politics than either just the razzmatazz or claims of competence. Politics has to be about our better angels, about ideals and idealism. And, and values. And yeah. values. And that brought, brought me back to Britain after 1989 with a, with a deep sense that, that there needed to be a values basis to the politics that Labour was offering. And of course, we then moved rapidly to a position where Labour became a more serious contender for power in the early 1980s. And you worked with Gordon Brown, who went on to become Prime Minister uh, and Tony Blair was uh, was ascending at the time. Um, you, you, we, we spoke before uh, this, and you said that you there was this sense of of possibility, this sense of something emerging. Uh, then, what was that? Well, as I say, I joined the party back in 1982 when Labour was uh, electorally devastated in '83, and and then started a very long march back to relevance and to power. And what sustained me on that journey was a sense that the Labour Party was both moving closer towards the concerns of working people in Britain, but also, frankly, closer towards the party that I felt it should be. And that process accelerated in the in the early 1990s, just a year after that Dukakis defeat. Uh, I found myself on graduation working with Gordon Brown, Uh, My senior honours tutor at the University of Edinburgh had supervised Gordon Brown's PhD and knew that Gordon was looking for somebody to uh, work with him and support him. He was at the time the shadow regional affairs spokesman. Tony Blair was the shadow social security spokesman. So by extraordinary good fortune, I found myself... Meaning they were in the opposition. They were in the opposition. those were their portfolios. Those were their portfolios. But when I worked in that office, Tony Blair was next door, Gordon Brown was in the office that I worked in, the... They, they shimmered with a sense of possibility and destiny. These were opposition politicians still a number of years away from power, seven years away from power, but inspiring in many of us a sense of confidence that Labour's Day would come, um, partly because of the depth of their thinking and the seriousness of their approach to bringing Labour back. Um, they worked very hard and they spent a lot of time thinking and discussing and deliberating how Labour could again unite values and principles with real power um, but also just they were inspiring individuals and in that sense that year that I spent working with them I then came back to Scotland and studied law and practiced law uh, convinced me that Labour was on its way back. You know uh, we think of our countries as sort of independent entities that move uh, on our own pace and yeah you guys kind of sorted that out in 1776 as i recollect exactly exactly i didn't want to bring up sore (laughs) subjects but 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 in the the labor party in britain and the democratic party in america in the 80s sort of took the same journey through Mm. devastation and then uh, you had the emergence of blair and uh 
and Bill Clinton at the same time in the early 90s rallying uh, their parties, redefining uh, their parties. Uh, is that coincidence? Because we find ourselves uh, in, in a situation now where the Democratic Party and the Labor Party uh, have just suffered the same kinds of defeats, yeah. some of the same issues swirling around? Or is there commonality between the experience I, of I our I think countries? it's commonality, both in terms of the experience of the countries, but also the experience of the parties. I mean, I will remember one occasion when I was working with Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, when they travelled to the United States, and they, I think, understood very early on that, that um, Clinton's victory anticipated the possibilities for the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. And they came back from those visits to the United States, not just with many friends and contacts in the Democratic Party, but with suitcases full of ideas, policies, tools and techniques, whether that was, at that time, the importance of being able to distill a message and communicate it on broadcast television, the use of a soundbite, whether it was the need for there to be a junction box at the heart of every campaign, the idea of a war room, the kind of techniques, or much more substantially in areas like policy, ideas like the earned income tax credit, finding its way back into Britain with the working tax credit that we introduced when Labour came to power in 1997. So there was a huge degree of exchange back and forth in the mid-1990s as to what it would take for centre-left parties to be able to win again and then to be able to govern effectively in the interests of the people who had elected them. You ran, uh, you, you talked about uh, being bad luck for uh, those uh, for parties, for yeah. the parties that you uh, were for Dukakis and uh, others, but you had, a, you had some misfortune at the, uh, uh, at the ballot box yourself. You ran a couple of times for uh, Parliament before you, you were elected. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, uh, I stood for Parliament for the first time in 1995, in a by-election in Scotland where Labour were a very distant third. And frankly, if there had been any possibility of Labour winning that seat, I would not have been the candidate. <laughs> but that was uh, just a couple of years before our historic victory in 1997. It anticipated uh, the kind of mood and change that was underway in Britain at the time. So we came from a very distant third to a relatively close second. So that was my first blooding, if you like, as a, as a Labour candidate. I gave a commitment to that constituency that I would go back and stand in 1997. So, in fact, I returned, but with an SNP MP, a Scottish National Party MP, anticipating, honestly, that if there was a non-conservative incumbent in the seat, then in all likelihood I wouldn't win the seat. But I felt the good people of the local Labour Party had given me that chance, and I owed it to them to return in the general election. So, in fact, in the great historic victory of 1997... I was a losing Labour candidate in Scotland. Uh, I then worked in the Treasury in the months immediately following uh, that general election. I remember I was working as a lawyer in Edinburgh at the time, and I had promised them on the basis of what I've just described to you that I would be back in my office on the Monday morning after the general election because there was no possibility that I would win the seat. And true to my word, I was back in the office on Monday morning. But on the Saturday, I'd received a phone call from Gordon Brown, who said, listen, Douglas, I need you to come and help uh, work on the budget. Can you be released from your law firm to come and work in the Treasury? Him having been appointed the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance Minister the day before. So I said, listen, Gordon, the problem is I've promised my law firm that I would be back at the desk on Monday morning. So together we hatched a plan. And on that Monday morning, 
Um, at 8 o'clock in the morning, Gordon Brown raised interest rates for his only time, actually, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, because at 11 o'clock that morning, he announced the operational independence of the Bank of England, the establishment of an independent central bank in the United Kingdom. In between those two events, I was sitting at my desk in Edinburgh, and my senior partner of the law firm burst into my office and said, you have no idea who's just phoned me. And I said, no, no, tell me, who's phoned? And he said, probably the second most important man in the country. Gordon Brown has just phoned me and told me that he needs you to come and work on the budget. You must go. I said, if the country needs you, you (laughs) must go. So, in fact, I ended up working for two months helping write the first budget that Labour delivered in Gordon delivered on July the 2nd of 1997 and then returned back home to Scotland and worked as a lawyer. And just a month after my return in August of 1997, uh, my predecessor in the seat that I came to represent in Renfrewshire, an MP called Gordon McMaster, committed suicide. And I received a phone call at that same desk from the chief whip of the Labour Party saying this terrible news had broken and asked whether Tony Blair had asked if I would consider standing in that seat. So I recount that story now because uh, time and chance play a huge part in in the life of politics. There was no plan, there was no organisation I'd fully anticipated I would be back representing working people as a lawyer. And then by November 1997, I found myself elected in Renfrewshire for a seat that I held until 2015. I should have asked you this in sequence, but uh, Tony Blair and and Bill Clinton are often thought of, not just because they revived their parties, but just in terms of style, uh, the same way. Did you see it that way? Do you see the similarities? And, and talk to me about Blair and Brown, the two prime ministers of that Labour government. I think, first of all, the comparison between Clinton and Blair is is well taken and important to understand. Not only did they achieve great success for their parties in the 1990s and bring their parties back, but they were respectively probably the most effective communicators in British politics and in American politics at the time. Uh, and... Uh, I think they they had a genuinely close, probably still to this day have a close relationship, but certainly when they were in office, they worked very closely together. I remember one occasion when I was with Tony Blair helping him prepare his remarks for the Scottish Labour Conference in Glasgow, and he took a call from the then President Clinton and came out of the bedroom where he'd taken the call laughing, saying that the president had just declared that he was up to his ass in alligators, which was not a phrase that either Tony Blair or I had heard before that phone call. But in that sense, they were genuinely close when they were in office, and they they both had transcendent political skills uh, in taking their parties into, into power. In terms of the Tony Blair and Gordon Brown relationship... Um, well, really, the difference between them as personalities. There was a sense always that Gordon Brown was... Uh, very much, uh, you know, a brilliant guy into the details, yeah. but not with the same level of political dexterity of a of a of a Tony Blair. Listen, they're they're both individuals of towering strengths, um, and in that sense, they were very different politicians. In the sense that you're right, Gordon had an extraordinary ability to uh, think deeply in terms of policy, uh, and At their best, they were an unbeatable combination. And actually, I think they brought out the best in each other. 
you know, back in 1990, that year that I saw them work so closely together. Um, literally the final person that Tony Blair would ask to speak to before appearing on the Today programme or appearing on Newsnight, the main shows on radio and television in the United Kingdom, would be Gordon Brown and vice versa. And actually the, the cleavage that happened when in 1994 John Smith, the Labour leader at the time, died and Tony Blair stepped up to become Labour leader and the rancour and division that that caused amongst some supporters on either side of that uh, choice, uh, I, I was detached from because having seen them work so closely together, I was at that point back in Edinburgh studying law. And so I think one of the reasons that I had a good working relationship with both of them actually was I had a, I saw them at their best and understood that they were both deeply committed to the, the project of modernising the Labour Party. Uh, and that stood me in good stead in the years that followed. But in retrospect, a lot of time and energy was wasted on what we called the TBGBs, the, the tensions and the disagreements that uh, at times characterised the relationship. At its best, that creative tension was extraordinarily creative and the government was better for it. And at its worst, it, it bled a lot of energy that could have been directed more usefully elsewhere. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with uh, Douglas Alexander. Douglas, let's, let's move forward to the election okay. that you and I experienced and... Uh, a couple of other elections, Brexit and the one we just experienced sure. here in the U.S., because it seems as if uh, they're of a piece in certain ways. Labor uh, lost uh, badly in 2015. Ed Miliband was the leader of the party um, and lost uh, in a way that nobody anticipated, no polling anticipated. Um, how much... Is that part of the thread that we've seen through Brexit, through Donald Trump's election? Uh, how much of it is that these sort of deep divides between the city of London and, and uh, rural and working class communities in Britain? Uh, certainly we saw that between the metropolitan areas and rural and working class communities here in the U.S. What, you're a student of... Mm. of Economics. You're a student of the of, of of this country and Europe. What's what's going on out there? I think you're right that there is a a thread, if you like, that connects the the recent electoral politics on both sides of the Atlantic. If I try and make sense of of what are the commonalities, I think there are three forces that have converged to create such disruption in two of the most established democracies on earth, in the United States and in the United Kingdom. And I think it's the coming together of economic anger, cultural anxiety, and political alienation. I think as we reflect, we'll understand the financial crisis as profoundly disruptive, not just to our economies, but to our politics as well. It trashed. In 2008. It, yeah, 2008. I think, I think indeed probably we'll look back on 2008 as one of those years where people's sense of how the world worked changed. You know, it's up there with 1945, uh, with 1989 more recently, uh, and maybe back to 1926. It's, it's, a, it's a hinge year uh, when, when things change profoundly. 
And I think as well as the immense economic turbulence and effect that that's had on people's living standards and economic security, it trashed people's confidence in the powerful, in bankers certainly, in regulators, but also in politicians and pundits and experts. And it trashed their confidence not just on the issue of competence, but also on the issue of their motives. And a lot of what has come to pass since then has its roots in the collapse in trust that we've witnessed since the financial crisis. So I think, undoubtedly, if you look at the Trump victory here in the United States or you look at the Brexit result back on the 23rd of June in Britain, you need to understand each of those forces. First of all, the real and genuine economic anger that a significant section of the population feel who feel that they're working harder but still falling further behind, that the economy's rigged, that the rules are set by others who don't play by those rules. Uh, you know, we, we should talk about that before you move on to... Sure. But the, I mean, there are real roots to this. Uh, the financial crisis exacerbated yep. it, for sure. But um, we we live in these revolutionary times, you know, when technology is just churning faster and faster, f- facilitating automation of jobs that once paid, facilitating globalization uh, that also costs uh, jobs in some sectors, uh, creating a, a, a strata of winners and a lot of folks who are s- sort of pedaling faster and faster to keep, uh, to keep their place. Um, isn't this driving a lot of what we see? Absolutely. I mean... Listen, throughout history, there's been fears that technological innovation would lead to mass unemployment. And actually, we've been incredibly innovative over the centuries in coming up with new forms of work. My fear at the moment is that the pace of technological change is faster than the rate of human transition or societal transition. So I don't buy the argument that says there's going to be no work in the future, but I think many of the advanced economies are failing to make the transition quickly enough to make sure that there is meaningful, purposeful work and reasonable incomes for all of society rather than just some of society. And that's a big challenge. There's kind of, and the paradox is that it probably takes uh, the catalytic power of government to, to affect the kinds of changes that are necessary and, uh, but at, and it comes at a time when confidence in government and all institutions, as you point out, yeah. are at a historic lows. So we need that, but there's not the political um, the political momentum behind behind government to get big things done. Well, the truth is, one of the changes I think we've we've witnessed on both sides of the Atlantic in recent years is the ascendancy of a politics of anger. You know, I grew up with a politics where we had competing answers, but it was incumbent on all sides of the political debate to offer answers and then for those answers to be tested and scrutinised through debate and discourse. I think one of the most worrying developments with the rise of xenophobia and populism and nationalism as we're seeing it today is that we're seeing politicians win who aren't even really trying to offer answers. What they're trying to do is to amplify and channel the anger that undoubtedly is out there and that many people feel as a result of the kind of economic changes that you've described. And that's why I think it's it's vital for progressive politicians to be addressing the need for policy, 
but also securing permission to speak. It needs good policy answers, but it also needs a sense of affinity, a sense of authenticity, in order that progressive politics can can defeat a politics of anger and rage that uh, is certainly proving popular, but I worry won't actually improve the livelihoods of many of the people who are supporting it to this day. You know, a pundit, and I have... Uh I've graduated to the pundit class, uh, took a beating in this election, and I include myself uh, in that group because there was this assumption that Hillary Clinton would win. And you actually uh, wrote a piece this summer uh, in which you you raised warning signs about whether that was the case. And you wrote, in part, in recent weeks, Hillary has maintained a lead of around four points in the national polls. However, some individual state polls suggest Trump is edging ahead. And after the 2015 British general election and last month's referendum, meaning Brexit, who would trust opinion polls anyway, which seems pretty prescient. Uh, you went on to say Hillary needs to use her convention speech to convince the people that her plan is for Main Street, not Wall Street. Then there's Hillary's biggest challenge, escaping being seen as a political insider in an era of the political outsider. Are those the things that you think um, caused her uh, defeat? Obviously, there were a lot of factors, but uh, do you think she successfully spoke to uh, to main streets around this country? Well, listen, the evidence is she's won the popular vote, but critically, she's lost the Electoral College, so... Um she won the elect- she won the she won the popular vote in the most populous areas exactly. of the country. That was literally the point I was coming on to make. And and it seems to me that she struggled, the evidence suggests, to connect with many of the working people who more than twenty years ago her husband managed to convince to vote for the Democrats for the first time after the Reagan presidency. Uh, and that Barack Obama managed to win the support of in two thousand eight and two thousand and twelve. And I think it comes down to both permission and policies. Hillary had lots of policies, but my sense is that if you ask the average American voter to give a sense as to what her campaign was offering them, they weren't as clear as they should have been. And, of course, there's technical issues about the polls. We know that in the UK and... 2015, people thought it was a 35-35 race, when in fact it turned out to be a kind of 31-36 race. Um, But I think you need to look at the trend lines below the headlines, below the polling numbers. And actually there is at the moment a significant section of the population here in the United States who didn't feel that the Democratic Party and the Democratic candidate was speaking for them and to them. And that's a challenge on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, this issue of nationalism and, and uh, kind of tribalism is, is, is rearing its head in, in Britain, in the U.S., and, and across Europe. Uh, Brexit certainly was part of that. Um, what, what, what do you see across the continent, and how does the election of Trump impact on these movements around, around Europe? You know, the first person he met with was Nigel Farage, the the, uh, head of of UKIP. And his victory has been welcomed by Marine Le Pen in France and by xenophobes and populists right across the Mm -hmm. continent. You know, we're looking in the next few months at uh, an important referendum in Italy where Matteo Renzi, the Italian prime minister, has put forward a series of constitutional changes. 
We're then looking at important elections in the Netherlands in March, French presidential elections in the spring, and then German federal elections in the autumn. So there are a series of big electoral tests coming up. And there's no doubt that Trump's victory has energised and enthused many of those populists across Europe who look at the Brexit result and look at the Trump presidency as evidence that the old ways of doing politics are are giving way to a very different kind of politics. Marie Le Pen, after the Brexit vote, gave an interview where she said, you know, left and right have no meaning any longer in French politics. It is now a battle between the globalisers and between the nationalists. And in that sense, there are some critical tests coming up. I think in understanding it, as I say, economic anger is a big part of it, but so also is a sense of cultural loss. Mm -hmm. And for many people, they feel a a deficit of, of money, but also a deficit of recognition that people feel they're their way of life, their neighbourhood, the culture of which they are part is not being recognised and valued in the ways that the economy and society are changing. And that leaves people um, open to the appeal of the populists who say we can define ourselves against others. In Trump's case, that might be against Muslims or against Mexicans. In the case of nationalists in Europe, it may be against the Roma or against other nationalities across Europe. Um, but it's it's a profound challenge to the politics that I believe in, which is a politics of pluralism and interdependence, which says that our differences are interesting, but our common humanity matters more. The, uh, the influx of refugees from Syria uh, clearly have exacerbated these pressures in Europe. How big will that play in this uh, election? You know, even in 2015, before the great infusion of these uh, of immigrants or the prospect that that could happen uh, immigration was a, a big issue in uh, the British election and you have to believe it's going to play even larger in the in some of the elections you mentioned particularly France next year and Germany I, th- I think that the scale of the refugee crisis that we've witnessed over the last couple of years in Europe with people strapping themselves to pieces of wood and rubber boats in the Mediterranean to try and get to Europe demands that we take a longer view and understand a, a broader perspective. Robert Kaplan here in the United States has written very convincingly on this. He says the whole idea of Europe was built over the last 60 or 70 years when the eastern border of Europe was closed by the Iron Curtain and the southern border of Europe was closed by the Arab autocrats. And what we've seen in recent years with the Arab revolt and the demise of the autocrats in the Arab world and the opening up of the uh, former communist countries has been a return to movements of population that we saw for many centuries before the most recent decades. But it represents a fundamental challenge to the idea of a borderless Europe where people can travel freely within Europe. Now, in Britain, the immigration debate tends to be about people moving from within the European Union into Britain. In continental Europe, it tends to be a debate about people moving from outside Europe into Europe. But immigration is going to, and issues of identity are going to continue to be a very big force in European politics in the years ahead. A lot, uh, another common element of Trumpism and uh, some of these movements in Europe, and you spoke of it when you talked about global, globalizers versus na- nationalist uh, movements, is uh, anti-trade sentiment. Uh, one of the 
casualties of this election was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and there was another major treaty being negotiated with Europe yep. uh, by the Obama administration. What are the, and I ask you this, I should have mentioned that you were the shadow foreign minister for yep. labor, so your portfolio was the world. What are the implications of, of that? Uh, and, and, and how do you interpret people's hostility uh, to trade? Well, the economic theory tells you that a rising tide lifts all boats, as John F. Kennedy said many decades ago, and that the overall effect of uh, trade agreements is beneficial to the overall economy. But if the benefits are general, the disbenefits are very specific. And actually, if you are somebody who's seen your job or your plant move overseas as a consequence of open trading policies, then it's understandable why many people in the United States or in Europe have raised flags and concerns over the terms of these trade agreements. It seems to me the answer is not to retreat into building more walls or starting new trade wars. Um, everybody loses with trade wars. Uh, there isn't a single country on earth that's managed to lift itself out of prosperity without trading with its neighbours and further afield. Uh, but the challenge is to ensure that countries and populations, all the populations, are equipped to benefit from integration into that uh, global economy. And I think, frankly, uh, the centre-left needs to do a better job in uh, providing answers and providing policies that allow every community and not just major global cities to benefit from the dynamism of the global economy. But truthfully, I worry that the populists are too often selling a lie to people who are in real need of answers. You know, many of these jobs are in the United States are not going to Mexico, they're going to microchips, as we've just discussed, that technology is having a disruptive effect uh, more than displacement of employment these days. And that's why I think we've got to open up a conversation about how do we improve levels of education, how do we provide effective wage subsidies so that um, people earning uh, enough to be able to support themselves and their family and have a reasonable standard of living? How do we make sure the infrastructure is there so that not just the cities but some of the towns that have struggled with deindustrialization get a fair kick of the ball and a chance to have a decent future? That requires government action uh, and that's why it's so important to find ways to rebuild people's confidence that politics can be a means by which solutions emerge rather than just a site where you express your pain. While we're talking about trade and commerce, uh, I have to take another break for a word from our sponsor. Back with Douglas Alexander. Um, part of uh, the dialogue in the American election was uh, very much about Russia and Vladimir Putin. Uh, Russia intruded in this election in a big way. Um, there seems to be universal agreement in the intelligence community that Russia was behind the hack of the of the uh, Democratic, Committee. Democratic mm -hmm. National Committee and the leaking of it to to WikiLeaks, which parceled it out strategically at the end of the campaign, much to the detriment of Hillary Clinton. First of all, I should ask, uh, how common is this, as you look across elections in Europe, for Russia to play this kind of subversive role? Well, I'm afraid there's growing evidence that the kind of uh, 
brazen meddling that we've seen in the US political uh, system over recent months uh, is finding an echo and a reflection in politics in Europe. You know, some of these far-right parties are securing loans and funding from Russian banks and Russian organisations. And there's very real concern in Europe over the language that President-elect Trump is using in relation to Vladimir Putin because partly as a consequence of the actions that uh, he took in Ukraine, partly because of uh, his determination to divide Europe and weaken Europe, uh, there's real anxiety, not just uh, amongst people who have long worried about Russia's influence on the continent, but amongst a growing section of the population who think, actually, this is the first time we've seen international borders transgressed in this way in recent decades. So there's genuine fear in Europe as to what the future holds in relation to Putin and the conduct of uh, what seems to be the Russian intelligence services in relation to this election will only have heightened that anxiety. The bulwark of the Western alliance has been the NATO treaty since the uh, World War II. Um, and obviously it must have been well covered in Europe that uh, uh, Mr. Trump raised the possibility of uh, uh, walking away from some aspects of it, in part uh, charging NATO members uh, more for uh, for their uh, membership. They asked them to step up and support more of the military activity and expenses uh, associated with defending the uh, alliance and raised the possibility of uh, not... Uh, of not following through on Article 5 of, of the NATO treaty and, and coming to the defense of a NATO partner, a NATO ally, if attacked. What, what, uh, what does that mean uh, in terms of Europe and the U.S.? One of the wisest comments that I've read since the election of Donald Trump was that his supporters took him seriously but not literally and the commentators took him literally but not seriously. Now, I sincerely hope that he was not speaking literally when he described the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, one of the keystones of the liberal international order over the decades, and a fundamental bulwark of Western security as being obsolete. That was the language that Donald Trump used. And if you are in the Baltic states at the moment, if you're in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, there is deep fear as to whether he takes seriously the terms of collective security, which is the fundamental basis of the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, the alliance that served the interests of Europe so well over the decades. Uh, so I hope that in the weeks and months ahead, there will be a, a different story emerging from the White House that recognises that it's certainly in Europe and in the United States collective interest to uphold the integrity of the alliance and that the fundamental premise of the alliance is that an attack on one is an attack on all. There's only been one instance when Article 5 has been triggered under the NATO treaty and that was after 9-11 uh, when NATO members came together and said given the attack that took place on the Twin Towers it was right to trigger Article 5. I hope that here in the United States there's an understanding of quite how fundamental for the security of the United States and the security of Europe the continuing collective security of NATO will, will be in the years ahead. Do you, uh, just returning to our discussion uh, a little bit earlier on the economic uh, 
issues and the lack of uh, trust and faith that people have in their institutions, governmental mm. institutions, to 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 deliver uh, fairness and to deliver economies that are um, uh, in which opportunity is available to broad numbers of people. Um, as you look across Europe and you look what happened here in the U.S., do you have a concern about uh, liberal democracies everywhere? And uh, do you think that it's possible? I, I choose not to believe this because, uh, you know, I believe so deeply uh, in the need for active progressive government. But uh, do you think the moment has passed that some of these forces that have buffeted people these huge economic forces that we've talked about have, and the inability of governments to respond to them uh, in a timely way has put in peril this whole experiment? I think it was Winston Churchill who said, the price of greatness is responsibility. And in that sense, I'm an optimist like you are, that ultimately I think plural liberal open societies will prevail. I believe that that's the future. But you need to look around the world and see the extent to which this feels at the moment like a time when autocrats are prevailing. You know, if you look at the power of presidency in China that's accumulated in recent years, you look at Erdogan in Turkey, uh, you look at Putin in Russia, uh, and then you look at the profoundly illiberal statements we've heard from President-elect Trump in recent months, unprecedentedly illiberal statements for somebody aspiring to the White House. And you have to recognise the jeopardy of the moment. Now, I'm part of the generation that saw the Berlin Wall come down in 1989, that saw South Africa liberated, saw Nelson Mandela walk from his prison cell. So I have an innate optimism about the, the progressive future that we can secure. But that progress can't be assumed it has to be earned and in that sense I take the recent electoral setbacks for the politics that I believe in as a challenge and as a call to action um, you know it was a President Obama who you know so well who so eloquently quoted Martin Luther King in saying the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice it does feel pretty long at the moment but I do ultimately believe it still bends towards justice one of the things that is an impediment toward bending that arc to just toward justice is also the modern media environment, which is uh, another function of technology uh, exploding in many ways. And uh, you, uh, you, you uh, spoke at Oxford last week and talked about Brexit and Trump. Uh, and you talked about this post-fact, post-truth world where politics is no longer about shared facts and divergent opinions in this world in which courtesy of social media, everyone has their own facts, real or invented, what matters most when communicated a plan, putting forward a vision or in shaping opinion is the story that people believe. Uh, how hard is it uh, in that kind of environment to uh, regenerate uh, enthusiasm beyond a, a positive plan to move forward? Um, it's tough, but it's always been tough to frame that story. You know, it was Joe Klein, the political commentator who once wrote, politics is the craft of competitive storytelling. So it's nothing new in politics to yeah. have to find a 
compelling, inclusive account of the country's future that finds favour with the electorate. It's just hard to find those channels to reach people today. Of, of course, and I think that the right course for progressive politicians is to combine evidence with emotion. You know, facts matter, but story and sentiment and emotion matter as well. And we need political leaders who can craft those stories and those narratives that combine both. But it is, as you say, a challenge when, for many people, their social media feeds at best reinforce their views and at worst reinforce their prejudices. We've got to find common places and spaces where we can meet together to discuss our shared future. And I I grew up in a politics where we shared facts and we diverged on opinions. But increasingly, um, we're seeing with the truly revolutionary effect of social media on our political discourse that we can very easily become two tribes that neither understand each other nor encounter each other. The... uh Labour Party, after Miliband's loss, elected Jeremy Corbyn as its leader and has lost uh, market share, as it were, uh, in Britain to the point where there's some doubt as to its ability to compete. Uh, what lessons do you did you learn from that that you would impart to Democrats uh, in the U.S. as they try and reconstitute uh, the party looking forward to future elections? that we need to be about more than anger, we need to be about answers, and that the only winning formula, I think, for centre-left parties to secure that majority support is to combine authenticity with credibility, that people need to trust your capacity to run a government and to run a country, but they also need to know that you believe deeply in not only your own values, but a vision of the country's future of which they are part. And in many ways, I see the embrace of Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party, as a a cry, a demand amongst many people for authenticity in politics. But at the moment, the public seem to be uh, not convinced of the case that he's making as to the kind of government that he would lead. And so in that sense, I think the conversation needs to straddle both the concerns and cares of people and speak directly to those concerns and cares, but also incorporate uh, enough common sense that people trust that you're able to run the the government of the country. So I I would say that the winning formula remains the formula that President Obama used here so successfully and that his predecessors both in Britain and the United States used, which was to be trusted, but also to be able to inspire. Well, it's going to be an interesting period for for your country, for our country, for Europe, for the world, because as we've said, there are there are many winds swirling now, and uh, uh, it's not clear where where it's all leading. Um, I don't want to leave on a on a negative note, however, because um, uh, the great thing about um, you know our democracy, about Republican government, and so on with a small r, is that uh, you do have a chance to grab the wheel. You do have a a chance to grab that arc of the moral universe and and shape it and bend it, and that's what elections uh, are about. And as long as there are fair and free elections, um, there's always the possibility of a better day. 
Absolutely. Listen, I, I, we started this conversation by me telling you that I joined the Labour Party in 1982 and admitting at the time I had no certainty, I had faith but no certainty that government could be a force for good in people's lives. I'm more confident of that 30 years on, you know, because I've seen the difference that progressive politics can make, whether that's delivering a national minimum wage, whether that's making record investment in the National Health Service to avoid preventable pain, whether it's extending opportunity for people to go to college or to university, that I hope that if there are people listening to this podcast, even if they are downhearted by the result that we saw here in the United States last week, they will retain a confidence as to their capacity to affect change. Because ultimately, we're the people that we've been waiting for. And it will be in our common endeavours to build a common life together that we can make the difference that people want to see. I'm with you on that, brother. I I, uh, I believe deeply in that. That's the whole uh, premise of asking people, of uh, encouraging uh, people to turn in and not away from politics, and um, your presence at the Institute of Politics this, this week has been enlightening to everybody you've had a chance to interact with. So I appreciate you doing that, and I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.